Choice is proudly brought to you by Wordsworth Books. It's the first Monday of the month, so it's Book Choice on Fine Music Radio, 101.3 FM, various other frequencies, all of which you'll find on our website, www.fmr.co.za. I'm Gory Bose-Taylor. This happy hour, Andrew Marshbanks, Wordsworth Books, gives us awesome fiction and non-fiction reads for the still chilly days of August. Beverly Rossmuller rereads with glee Gerald Durrell's The Corfu Trilogy, which includes the delightful My Family and Other Animals. More animals, though not so happily, in John Hanks's richly rewarding review of Philip Limbery's Dead Zone, Where the Wild Things Were. Vanessa Levenstein is happily engrossed in the Ministry of Utmost Happiness, Arundhati Roy's first work of fiction since she won the Booker Prize 20 years ago for The God of Small Things. And Jay Heal takes a close look at three locally produced picture books for young readers. Melvin Minar takes talks to art historian Anna Tietze about her history of the Iziko South African National Gallery, Reflections on Art and National Identity. It's the first comprehensive history of a 150-year-old South African National Gallery. As always, the mean-minded Mike Fitzjames sets your nerves a jangle with three terrifying crime novels, The Thirst by Joe Nesbo, The Caller by Chris Carter, and A Game of Ghosts by John Connolly. Peter Soule takes a hard look at two very different businessmen, Harry Oppenheimer and Brett Kebble. Finally, Ina Parman, perfectionist, praises Philippa Chaffetz's brand new, grand new cookbook. It's called Make It Easy, a collection of her truly tasteful recipes from Bully's Taste magazine. Stay with us for our Easy Peasy competition question to win a copy of Philip Lambrey's Dead Zone, Where the Wild Things Were, which you'll hear reviewed in a few seconds, or one of two 250 Rand Wordsworth Books vouchers. Andrew Marshbanks, some awesome autumn reads. Hi, Gory. Well, first book review of this month, I'm going to do and have a look at the bestseller list, the top 50 for the week ending 29th of July. And right at the top of that list is the Ministry of Utmost Happiness, the Aradati Roy book. Now, this is the first book that she's written after The God of Small Things, and it has proved to be a great success all over the world. The book is beautifully written, absolutely beautifully written, well worth reading, and has been chosen in the, the Booker Long List of I think it's about 20 books. It's right there amongst the long list and is in top running to get the Booker Prize this year. So that would be really great for her. And then number two in the list is a book that we actually can't sell to you anymore. It's Mandela's Last Years, the memoir of, by his doctor of Mandela's last illnesses. And I have to say it was a really strange concept for a book. It was a book that we were not really sure would sell because 
not that many people are interested in the nitty-gritty of medical matters. But apparently did. It sold. And I'm not quite sure whether it was the publicity, but they, they actually withdrew the book from sale after protests from the Mandela family. And I can't say that I blame them at all. But that's Mandela's last years. It's a bestseller that you can't buy in the shops. And number three is no longer whispering to power. And then apartheid, guns, and money. No longer whispering to power, the Tuli Maroncella. And apartheid, guns, and money is the shenanigans of the apartheid regime and how big companies associated with them to make a bit of money. So we go down, Leslie Pierce. And then there's a succession of books on how to get rich. And it is a growing section of books that are really selling very well, aimed very much at the wealthy black entrepreneurs and and people who want to become very wealthy. Billionaires under construction and go right down here, Africa's billionaires. These are all inspirational stories of people who really made it rich in Africa. So it's really good. And Fever Dion May is still there in the list. So that's a, a really good way of starting off the program and then secondly I've got to talk to you this is Women's Month and we are celebrating Women's Day and we have a competition for Women's Day it's a Facebook competition you go onto our Facebook page and you just choose which book you would like to get as a free present and one lucky person will win one of the books and the three books are Good Night Stories for Rebel Girls and this is a marvelous book of female heroes throughout the world and beautifully done, beautifully illustrated, lovely short biographies of each of them. And then there's Eleanor Oliphant is Completely Fine by Gail Honeyman. This is the first book by a new author that's doing extremely well. And then there's a South African book coming up, Maxine Case and her new book, Softness of the Lime, also beautifully written. So go onto our Facebook page, enter that competition, and you could win one of those books. Right, I've got a new thriller writer that I really have enjoyed. His name is James Swallow. He wrote a book about a year ago called Nomad, and it sort of slipped under the the radar a little bit. It didn't hit me at all. And then he's now just come up with a second book uh, called Exile, James Swallow. Nomad was a moderate bestseller, and now it's being eclipsed by Exile. They are both men's thrillers, Lots of action set in the Middle East. They remind me of I Am Pilgrim, although I'm sure you've heard lots of people say that about many books. But really, this is good action fun, hard-hitting, riveting stories, heroes that work and heroes that die. And they are, they are books that you could give to any man or woman who love an action thriller. They will really, really enjoy it. That's Nomad by James Swallow and Exile by James Swallow. And Exile is 270 Rand. The Nomad is a small paperback, 190 Rand. Well worth reading. And then I've got a Swedish thriller that's just come in. I love the Swedish ones and all those Scandi ones. They're great. This one's called The Scandal by Frederick Backman. And I'm just going to read you the first paragraph. Late one evening, towards the end of March, a teenager picked up a double-barrel shotgun, walked into the forest, booked the gun to someone else's forehead, and pulled the trigger. This is the story of how we got there. 
well, doesn't that make you want to know what's happened in the book? It's been a huge bestseller in Europe, just now translated into English, and it's a book worth reading. I loved it. A Town This Small Can't Afford to Take Sides, The Scandal by Frederick Backman, and it's 295 rand. And then I've just got just a little time. I just want to talk about the Frankie Fenner cookbook, uh, written by Andy Fenner. I have mentioned it once in the programs, and I'm just mentioning it again because I have found that the recipes work. I've used two recipes in here. They are really excellent. You follow them, and your food tastes beautiful. I'm about to try another recipe this weekend at a braai, a salt and pepper lamb ribs. We bought a couple of loads of lamb ribs, and these look fantastic. Tells you exactly how to do it, what rub to put on. Looks excellent. There are also things like cold pork pie, flat iron steak. I think Frankie Fenner must be the only place where you can get flat iron steak in Cape Town. We see it all on the American recipes, but they're here in Cape Town. Flat iron steak. Okay, and that's a meat manifesto, and it's 550 rand, a great cookbook. Thanks a lot, everyone. Keep reading. Bye. <laughs> meat manifesto. Beverly Rosemuller, you gleefully read Gerald Durrell's The Corfu Trilogy. The most idyllic childhood imaginable was that of the writer and naturalist Gerald Durrell, who lived from the age of 10 with his eccentric expat family on the beautiful verdant island of Corfu, where he ran wild and there developed a lifelong love of all creatures. Writing was a family talent, and his brother Larry was the acclaimed writer Lawrence Durrell, author of the Alexandria Quartet, a very serious contender for the Nobel Prize in the early 1960s. No book in my growing years came close to the dizzy joy I felt by reading My Family and Other Animals, the romp of endless summer days and lazy nights, swimming in warm seas and combing the island for friends, including animals, fruit and fabulous adventures. Gerald's tales of this marvellous time before World War II are side-splitting, and my recent purchase of the Corfu Trilogy reminded me of that island paradise. It was because of his book that I visited Corfu in the 1970s. It was the most heavenly place I've ever stayed. We bunked in a sort of primitive hut with a cold water shower on a white sandy beach in a beautiful little cove, with water so clear you could see miles out. There were only about five or six other people there, and every night the Orthodox priest, dressed in black, stood on a rowing boat from a little island with a white church on it and got solemnly drunk at the tiny taverna, which sold cheap food and terrible wine, which we drank anyway. It was marvelous. I learned to speak tourist Greek very quickly, as no one in where we were living could speak English. It was just as brilliantly, wonderfully beautiful as Gerald Durrell had described. This was, of course, before tourism left its heavy imprint, and studded the once remote of Royal Island, Prince Philip, Duke of Edinburgh, was born there, with horrible huge hotels plonked all over it. Gerald Durrell wrote 37 books, mainly about his animal collecting trips, and dedicated his life to the conservation of wildlife, for which he was awarded the OBE. Gerald's father had been an Anglo-Indian engineer, and he and his wife and his children were born in India. 
His wife, Louisa, was widowed young, and the dismayed family regarded life in grey and dingy England as unbearable. Lawrence was by then married, which is not mentioned in the book, and persuaded them to join him in 1935 on Corfu, where he was thriving on a bohemian literary lifestyle. The family moved from one picturesque villa to another, adopted by their bossy, kindly driver, Spiro, and the elegant, knowledgeable Dr. Theodore Stephanides, who managed to drum some learning into little Gerald's natural passion for collecting creatures of all sorts and filling the house with them with predictably funny and disastrous results. Gerald roamed Corfu with his collecting box and his trusty dog. His middle brother Leslie shot things, often for the pot, but the family was not well off, although not nearly as poor as the television version would have it. And the only girl, Margot, struggled with teenage acne, while Mother Darrell, described as short and vague, spent most of her time consulting recipe books and cooking in her steaming kitchen. All this is a very far cry from the TV series The Durrells, showing at the moment on television, which is loosely based on the Corfu trilogy, and by loosely I mean hardly at all. On television we see slim, elegant Durrells, a flustered and randy mom hunting down potential lovers, an oaf like Leslie, and a jolly set, set of quaint locals. It's all very the English man abroad and the challenges of living in a country that doesn't speak decent English. You might like the television series, but I think you'll adore this book. At the end of his life, Joel wrote, If I could give a child a gift, I'd give him my childhood. And in a way, he has in this wonderful, memorable, must-read book. The Corfu Trilogy, including My Family and Other Animals, by Gerald Durrell, published by Penguin. John Hanks, you're a zoologist with a Cambridge PhD. You've had over 45 years in a wide variety of conservation and research projects around Africa. You've been Chief Professional Officer for the Natal Parks Board, Professor and Head of the Department of Biological Sciences at the University of Natal, the director of the Africa program for WWF International, and there's more, chief executive of WWWF South Africa, and the first executive director of Peace Parks Foundation. You're very kindly going to give us your views on Dead Zone, Where the Wild Things Were, by Philip Limbery. When I was asked to review this book, I was initially hesitant and reluctant. Written by Philip Limbury, who is the chief executive of the leading international farm animal welfare organization named Compassion and World Farming, I had anticipated an emotional polemic, castigating commercial agriculture for its attempts to increase production to feed a global human population that has increased by a staggering one billion in the last 12 years to at least 7.5 billion people today. I could not have been more wrong. This is one of those rare books that I have absolutely no hesitation in telling my colleagues they must read, a vitally important publication of relevance to us all, especially conservationists and those responsible for growing and producing our food. But even more importantly, it is a wake-up call to look critically at what we eat every day and how it is produced. 
Limbury has succeeded admirably in capturing the essence of a considerable body of authoritative references in support of his critical concerns of the detrimental impacts of intensive industrial agricultural farming on natural areas and the species they contain. And for those who want to check on any of his hard-hitting conclusions, he has no less than 42 pages of references at the end of the book. I enjoyed his informal style of writing, which I found compelling and engaging, avoiding the shrill and often exaggerated recitals that unfortunately have come to epitomise so much of the environmental advocacy literature. His vivid but not exaggerated accounts of his journeys to many countries to witness and describe the harsh realities of large-scale factory farming focus on some of the most appalling conditions where animals are reared so they grow as big and fast as possible to satisfy the global demand for meat that is predicted to double in the next 35 years. Already some 60 billion chickens are produced annually in totally unacceptable overcrowded broiler systems but no daylight and where more than half have problems just walking. Some die of heart and lung problems before they are six weeks old. The conditions for the majority of factory farmed cattle, sheep and pigs are no better and it's hard to believe that any educated person would not be disgusted that the meat we do not really need is being produced with a total disregard for animal welfare. Dead Zone goes much further than focusing on compassion and farming by calling attention to the profound environmental consequences of feeding these boxed-in animals a staggering one-third of the world's grain crop, which could be used to feed people directly. Added to this is the food these animals receive from palm oil plantations and places like Sumatra, which incidentally gives the country the dubious distinction of having the highest rate of deforestation in the world as land is cleared to grow these crops, sending many a species of wildlife from the Sumatran forest to the brink of extinction. Massive land transformation for industrial-scale agriculture is also directly and indirectly decimating wildlife populations. In Europe alone, there are today 300 million fewer birds on farmland than there were in the 1980s. And throughout the world, this intensive agricultural production has made these lands a hazarded place for a wild spectrum of biodiversity, particularly insects and birds, wiped out by chemical insecticides. Isn't it about time that we emphasize that with one-third of the vegetable food we eat, depending on bees for pollination, the conservation of pollinators should be one of our top priorities? Philip Limbury is very aware that it will be a long haul to move towards sustainable global ecological security. He is not advocating that everyone should become a vegetarian, but his message is unambiguous, realistic and achievable. Shift your diet away from the overconsumption of resource-sapping animal products by eating less meat and better meat. The title again is Dead Zone, Where the Wild Things Were. The author is Philip Limbury and is published by Bloomsbury in London. I thoroughly recommend it. 300 million fewer birds. Isn't that shocking? Vanessa Levenstein, you could hardly tear yourself away from Arundhati Roy's The Ministry of Utmost Happiness. Over 400 pages long, The Ministry of Utmost Happiness by Arundhati Roy is set against the background of political turmoil in India. 
At the centre of the story are two women from very different backgrounds whose paths cross only towards the end of the book. We are first introduced to the infant Aftab, a little boy born in Delhi whose mother discovers a few hours after his birth that he not only has male genitalia but also female. She hides the secret for years, hoping it will go away, that he can be cured. However, the young Aftab is determined to follow his own destiny. He is drawn to a household where hijas live. In English, this is roughly translated as transgender. At 15, Aftab leaves both his home and his male identity behind and becomes Anjam. She soon becomes one of India's most famous hijas. The head of the Hijra's home explains that they are chosen people beloved by the Almighty. This belief is one that indeed saves and dramatically alters Andran's life. She unwittingly gets caught up in the 2002 Gujarat riots when 790 Muslims and 254 Hindus lost their lives. Yet Andran's life was saved by these words, Don't kill her brother, killing Hijra's brings bad luck. Andran returns home traumatized, so seeks refuge in the only place she feels she can live, a cemetery. The book starts with Andran in the cemetery. She builds a home and incorporates her family's tombstones as part of the decor. Her close friend is an untouchable who pretends to be Muslim and has adopted the name Saddam Hussein. As a reader, I could quite happily have dwelled with Andran for the remainder of the story, yet Halfway through the book, we are introduced to the second protagonist, S. Tilatama, or, as she calls herself, Tylo. Tylo is an architectural student, political activist, and free spirit. Now, if you think she sounds like the author, you're correct. At university, Tylo was the object of three men's affections, Musa, who's a revolutionary, Naga, her safety net, and then a journalist who becomes an alcoholic and really doesn't serve the story other than to part narrate it. Roy is an outspoken advocate for Kashmir's freedom from India. She vividly describes the bloodshed, human sacrifice and tragic loss in this land. And the duality of this work is strong. Anjam is raised male but feels female. An untouchable Hindu is parading as a Muslim. Tylo is married to Naga but loves Musa. Kashmir is subject to India's rule but is fighting for independence. And life is lived to the fullest in a cemetery. The end may be faulted for the pretty ribbon used to tie it up. But Roy's writing is so powerful that foibles are forgiven. For the first time in her life, Tylo felt like her body had enough room to accommodate all its organs. Now it's sentences like this that makes Roy's writing just dance off the page. Reading the Ministry of Utmost Happiness, I was transported from my world and became totally immersed in another. And that, as a reader, is our happy place. Indeed, it's our Ministry of Utmost Happiness. Jay Heal, you took a close look at three locally produced picture books for young readers. Three new South African picture books, each one with integrity. That's to say they aren't just cute and pretty stories made up for kiddiewinkies. First, Cheesy's Tale by Jack Jones, illustrated by Jackie Taylor, published by Strake. Based on the true story of a sick, young black rhino. I'm trying to avoid the word charming, although that's what it is. Very simply told, presenting the problem of a baby rhino adopted temporarily by a game ranger's family. 
Jezewana in Zimbabwe means orphaned, and so the rhino was called Jizi. Enjoyable and real, certainly the best illustration that I've seen yet from Jackie Taylor, a clever blend of art and photo collage with crisp, clear outlines for impact and a splendid photo at the end of the actual ranger with his wife, three children, and Chizzy the Rhino himself. A pleasure to look at and to read, and a reminder of how precious rhinos are to us. The next book has the curious title of Ink. It's written by Ingrid Menon, illustrated by her daughter Irene Berg. The mental process of turning letters into words and eventually into stories is one of the most difficult steps on the way to education. And Ingrid Menon simplifies the daunting quality and turns it into a happy, joyous adventure, as it should be. And her daughter's clear, distinctive artwork adds visual flow as we follow a small girl having fun using mostly a warm cream color with black and the white of the paper, Irene adds a vital red crayon and tiny touches of faint green and blue. I love the wordless, breathless quality of one spread in which books and birds and ideas go whirling above puss in boots and all and the almost hidden reference to Gutenberg. Inc., published by Tafelberg, embodies the process of book creation and falling in love with story. Oh, and a, and a cozy black cat. It's a lovely, thoughtful addition to our read-aloud children's literature. The Elders at the Door, by Marianne Bester, illustrated by Shale Bester from Jakarta, is truly local and African. The Besta sisters first introduced Nguni cattle as human creatures for our indigenous children's literature with the cool Nguni and subsequent titles. Here we have a glorious picture book about a horned goat family living in African style and superbly dressed. Well, they should be. Their father is a tailor. The text feels like an expanded African proverb. Where there is love, there is also blessing and wisdom. And those three gifts are personified here by magnificently dressed animal elders. The artwork carries this book. It is thoroughly and magnificently African, each spread having solidity, impact, and great dignity among the fun. Pictures to explore and admire inside a book to treasure on your shelf. The titles again, Chizzy's Tale about a young rhino, Ink about the way books are made, and The Elders of the Door, an African proverb turned into glorious stately characters. Happy reading. Such lovely visuals there. Melvin Minar, the first comprehensive history of the 150-year-old South African National Gallery. I'm talking to Anna Tietze. She is a cultural and art historian with an interest in past and present perceptions of art, academic art history and the art museum, and she teaches at the University of Cape Town. She has just published a new book, which is drawing a lot of interest. 
And now your book, Tracing the History of the Iziko South African National Gallery in Cape Town, comes at a time when that very art institution, one of the country's most important, I would say, is under severe pressure and possibly at a crossroad. I imagine the subtitle of your fine and most readable book suggests something of that predicament. Reflections on Art and National Identity. Before we tackle that issue, give us a brief summary of the history and the important role of the National Gallery. Well, the gallery has been in existence since the 1870s. It's nearly 150 years old. It started out life as a a tiny little institution and um, struggled for many years, in fact, to find a building of its own. It's only in 1930 that the current building was opened and the gallery was really established in Cape Town as a major presence. So the book goes right back to the beginning and examines the development of this history from the earliest days right up to the present. And what it does as well as that in um, quite a, a long introduction and a conclusion is offer some theoretical points to about art museums and art collections more generally. Yes, I, th- I, I think that reflects the subtitle, what you're saying now, of, of the book, which makes it more valuable than just a simple sort of history. Hmm. Over the 150 years of its existence, how did collection and curatorial practices change at the gallery, would you say? Well, in hmm. the very early days, it was heavily influenced by colonial British ideas the honorary directors, it only had honorary directors in those days, were inevitably British. And the overseas buyers were always based in London too. And a great deal of the collection was actually of English art, usually English contemporary art. So one of the big major changes after the 1930s was for very much more South African art to be collected. But at that stage, of course, it was nearly always white South African art. So the other big development of the later years has been to increase the acquisitions of black South African art too. And there's still work to be done in that direction. Yeah, so the, 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 the directors played an important part, I would imagine. They did, they did, and the book focuses on them quite a lot. And I mean, there's a lot of human interest in that story of the directors because they were all very different people, most of them men, until Marilyn Martin in 1990. And they were very important influences. And I had quite a lot of fun in writing about those directors because there were scandals and there were troubles attached to some of them. So I looked into those as well as into their sort of their their policies. Um, and it provides quite an interesting kind of human story with each chapter um, that deals with a different director. How much source material were readily available? I mean, how accurately is the history documented? Well, there's very little out there. Um, there are a few articles, most of them very old. So most of the work that was behind the book was primary research going through the archives in the gallery and that was one of the reasons why I felt the book needed to be written because nobody really has brought its history up to date and they've nobody has looked at the whole period of time from the 1870s right up to the present which is what this book does. How much of the character of the various directors and some of the other role players did you sort of come across how much how vivid did their personalities come through in your research oh they did they did and 
that's why there is this interesting human interest dimension to it. Um, there was the sort of the fiery Edward Roworth in the late 1930s who decided unilaterally to sell off a large part of the collection. Um, there was the rather troubled John Paris just after the war who was finally asked if he would leave and then there was the highly diplomatic Raymond Van Niekerk they were all very different characters and, and um, interesting and good directors many of them in their own their different ways of course there isn't a director of the National Gallery anymore no. it's a new bureaucratic title yeah. as I said at the beginning it comes at quite a serious time for the for the Ezekiel yeah. South African National Gallery. What is your take on the situation right now? I'm concerned about it and in writing the book I'm hoping that the book will generate some serious interest in this institution and some realisation that it needs to be taken very, very seriously at an official level. And what it needs more than ever, and this has been an ongoing issue, is it needs generous funding. We know, of course, that the Zeitz Museum is about to open in September the gallery needs to be taken seriously and to be well-funded in order to compete adequately with that commercial gallery. And it has a very, very important part to play. And, and I th in my conclusion, I look at some of the sorts of directions that it might take into the future. So you're quite optimistic, would you say? I'm trying to be strategically optimistic, you could <laughs> say. <laughs> Well, I think your book indicates the direction in some kind of ways. Thank you very much, Anna. Thank you. Mike Fitzjames, you're meanly, as always, trying to set our nerves on edge. Good afternoon, Gurry. This has been a great month for thrillers. My first choice was The Thirst by Joe Nesbo, one of the finest thriller writers and eagerly awaited every year. A woman is found murdered after an internet date. The many marks left on her body reveal to the police that here they are dealing with a particularly vicious killer. With huge pressure from the media to find the murderer, the force know that there is really only one man for the case. The trouble is that Harry Ho is reluctant to return to the place that almost removed everything from his life. But now he starts to suspect a connection between this killing and his only failed case. When another victim is discovered, Harry realizes that he will have to put every last effort on the line if he is finally catch the one who got away. That's all the information you need. Now get reading and enjoy. My second choice was The Caller by Chris Carter, another author who has rocketed into the bestseller list after a tough week, Tanya Caitlin is having a relaxing shower when she hears her phone ring. A video call request comes from her best friend, Karen Ward. Tanya takes the call, and then the nightmare begins. Karen is visible, but she's gagged and bound to a chair in her own living room. A deep, raspy, demonic voice on the line promises Tanya that if she disconnects the call, he will come for her next. And the same will happen if she looks away from her camera. When detectives Hunter and Garcia investigate the threats, they are thrown into a roller coaster of evil, chasing a predator who scars the streets and the social media networks 
for victims, taunting them with secret messages and feeding on their fears. A gripping book. I couldn't put it down. My last choice this month is A Game for Ghosts by John Connolly. This is the latest Charlie Parker thriller in his series. It is deepest winter, and the darkness seems unending. A private detective named Jacob Eklund has vanished. Now Charlie Parker has been dispatched to track him down. Meanwhile, Edgar Ross, an agent of the Federal Bureau of Investigation, has his own reasons for wanting Eklund found. Eklund is not an ordinary investigator. He is obsessively tracking a series of homicides and disappearances, each one strangely linked to reports of hauntings, no less. Now Parker will be drawn into Eklund's world, in which a monstrous mother rules a crumbling criminal empire, in which men strike bargains with angels, and in which the innocent and guilty in the great chess game are just pawns. This is a fascinating book, tangled but riveting to the last page. That's it for this month. My choices were The Thirst by Joe Nesbo, The Caller by Chris Carter, and finally, A Game of Ghosts by John Connolly. Enjoy your reading. And look after your nerves. Peter Soule, two very different businessmen. I have two books this month. Both of them of businessmen, but as different from each other as cheese is from chalk. The first is on Harry Oppenheimer, and the second on Brett Kibble. A Man of Africa, the Political Thought of Harry Oppenheimer, is edited by Kalim Rajab and published by Zebra Press. Kalim Rajab was educated at the universities of Cape Town and Oxford. He has worked at De Beers in London and as personal assistant to Nicky Oppenheimer. He is currently a trustee of the Helen Sussman Foundation. Rajab has cleverly taken a selection of speeches made by Oppenheimer over a period of almost 50 years, presenting his views on diverse subjects such as liberalism and Cecil John Rhodes, apartheid and sanctions, and trade unions and geopolitics. Rajab has carefully researched the speeches and then presents extracts from them followed by an assessment by prominent South Africans such as former President Mortlantle, retired Judge Albie Sachs, Clem Sunter, Dennis Beckett, Bobby Godsell, Jonathan Janssen and Cordella Manku. Oppenheimer's opposition to apartheid was resolute and clear. He understood it would fail and would have to be replaced with a policy of unity based on individual merit in the place of division on a basis of race. This commitment was continued by Gavin Reilly, Oppenheimer's successor as chairman of Anglo-American. Michael Spicer, a former senior executive at Anglo, pays tribute to Reilly for continuing the Oppenheimer resistance to apartheid. Spicer also discloses that Mandela asked Oppenheimer to convene a group of business leaders to act as a sounding board for him. Oppenheimer offered to host the group at the Brenthurst Library, which met 10 or 12 times in the early 90s and helped steer the ANC away from its attraction to Marxist thinking towards market economics. Sanctions is another subject he was resolute and clear on. 
Oppenheimer believed that foreign investment spelt the difference between peaceful and violent change in South Africa. He believed a booming economy would mean better jobs for people of color, relieve Africana anxiety, and make for peaceful change. On the other hand, depression would also bring about change, through unemployment and then violence. Thus his opposition to sanctions. Lord Robin Rennick notes that Oppenheimer was committed to improving the conditions of his workforce in opposition to government policy. Oppenheimer could not understand how laying off large numbers of workers as a result of sanctions could possibly benefit peaceful change. Many other issues are raised in the book with comment from leading friends, including a tribute paid by Madiba when Oppenheimer died, referring to him as a man of exquisite grace and charm. The book A Man of Africa is a fascinating work and is strongly recommended. The Kebble Collusion, Ten Fateful Days in a 26 Billion Rand Fraud by Barry Sargent, is published by Jacana and is of a completely different era. Sargent writes that the book tells an extraordinary tale of two levels. First, it is about joining all the dirty dots in Brett Kebble's brilliant and criminal business career and exposing the stories of the many people who have worked tirelessly to cover up the story. Secondly, it relates to Sargent and his quest to get to the bottom of it all. Sargent has done extensive research into the deals Kebble and his cronies cooked up at JCI, Rand Gold, Western Areas and their many other companies and into the question of the cover-up. He writes that it was a world of outright denial and selective amnesia, of complex financial transactions designed to confuse, obfuscate and hide the spoils. It is, he writes, a world of dirty dealings across the upper strata of the socio-political system, caught up in shady financial dealings involving billions. In page after page, he sets out in great detail the murky world in which Kebble was king. There is far too much detail of the individual deals for me to adequately review in a short piece such as this. Suffice to say that stockbrokers, accountants and lawyers will salivate while paging through this extensive study. Sargent has presented us with a major work relying on painstaking details and many years of preparation. The cover-up is breathtaking in scope and audacious in scale. Ina Palman, good to have you on Book Choice. Well, nice of course, to talk to you, <laughs> And of course, we're used to having you for breakfast, so to speak, on, <laughs> yeah. on FMR on a Saturday morning. That's In fact, you know, right. I think yeah. your, your pulled pork recipe, one of your very early ones, has become one of our listeners' favourites. Yeah, no, that really is a nice recipe, I must admit. You're very clever. And um, your first cookbook... Cook with Ina Palmer was published in, gosh, a long time ago, 1987. Yes, and, and your husband still took the photograph for the front cover. God, I remember that, yes, the mm. front and back. My dead husband, yes. Yeah, well, he was such a talented um, oh. photographer, that's, lovely person. That's lovely to hear. And uh, that was ten years after Philippa Schaefitz published her Meals for a Month. That's uh, correct. And you've both produced, I mean, really inspiring cookbook collections ever since. And you're, In fact, you're going to chat about Philippa's latest. It's called Make It Easy. It's published by Woolies Taste magazine. 
And, you know, what makes this book exceptional? What strikes you about this book? You know, I always think that we are all time poor. And these recipes are genuinely easy to do. There are a couple more challenging ones, but the title of the book is Make It Easy. And it is genuinely easy. And as we both know, Philippa is very food literate. And she has an in-depth understanding of ingredients and the marriage of classical flavors, which means that you're not going to waste your time with something that will be okay but not right. And all of that I agree with. And, you know, and of course, with your lifelong dedication to good food and, and good cooking, you look at the common sense issues in a book, the practical things. Yes. Now, does Philippa suggest ingredients that one can get easily and are her methods easy to follow? Um, the ingredients would certainly be available at Woolies because, you know, the recipes were written for their magazine. And, uh, you know, there are some great ideas and I quite like the idea of quite a lot of vegetarian dishes thrown in as well. And her fish dishes have always been good. And the fish dishes in this book, I really enjoyed tasting some of them. Oh, you tested them. Oh, that's wonderful, Lena. Well, not the whole book, but no, not quite. we had for supper. <laughs> well, tell us which one you chose to test. There was a Turkish-style mince cake on, I can't remember what page it is now, and there was also a baked spice fish with a biryani rice, which was really delicious. Yes, you're both very clever. And, Ina, if I said to you, choose a three-course winter lunch from Make It Easy, would you like to do that? I would like to give it a little more time. I don't want to jump in, and but certainly, you know, there are some nice ideas for fish and for there's a couple of soups here and what I particularly liked about the book is she didn't elaborate on starters but she gave a couple of quick and easy, she called them quick starts and it only took about two or three, no one page in the book, for instance there were nice radishes with olive oil and flaky salt and there was a nice pate and crispy chickpeas and so on. In other words, quick and easy things to, to have with a drink. She also has one page only on desserts, and the dessert page she calls, I thought it was quite a clever title, Fast Finishes. <laughs> and my favorite there would have to be ice cream served in a demi-tasse cup with strong proper coffee poured over it and the name of the dish is afgatu which means to drown in other words you drown the ice cream with the coffee so if you start with one of these quick and easy starters and end with that drowned coffee then in between there are lots of choices that was Ina Parman, and she was talking about Philippa Schaefitz's new book. It's available in Woolies. It's a collection of her columns from Woolies Taste magazine. It's called Make It Easy, 
And, of course, there was Ina Palman's famous venison recipe. I think it was in the last issue of Taste magazine. So you've got both of Cape Town's brilliant cooks at your fingertips. From Rick Everett, who kindly compiled the music, from Mataba Radebi, who cleverly kept the show on the road, and from me, Gory Bose-Taylor, it's Do Spend August with an Awesome Author. Book Choice was proudly brought to you by Wordsworth Books. Hi, I'm Andrew from Wordsworth Books. We have bookshops that are a bit different. We have staff that are a bit different. We love our customers, and we're passionate about our books. From paperbacks at 59 Rand to Leonardo da Vinci at 2,000 Rand, our selection is remarkable. And we sell special stationery as well. Wordsworth. We sell books the old-fashioned way. We read them. FMR.